Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code ARCPODNETFEED at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And, and my, my trowel. Hi, you're listening to episode 13 of And My Trowel, where we look at the fantastic side of archaeology and the archaeological side of fantasy. I'm Tilly. And I'm Ash. And today we have a slightly different quest ahead of us to usual. So before we get into it, Ash, what is your current opinion on wizards? Or I should say, what do you picture when you think of a wizard? Oh, I think of a very old man with a very long beard and a pointy hat. And usually the hat has stars on it. I think that's Disney. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, actually, that's pretty, you know, the, the, the long beard, the old man, the tall hat. I feel like that's pretty universal in a lot of cases. Like, I also can't really think of many wizards depicted, especially in fantasy, that are not some form of that. Yeah, I mean, even the kind of opposite of that, which is like Harry Potter, where he's a young boy, has an old man wizard in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's always an older guy, little spectacles, you know. (laughs) He probably has a penchant for cheese or something. (laughs) Right, obsessed with food. Yeah, obsessed (laughs) with food. Seems Um, like just like a a little old man, and then you're like, oh. (laughs) Yeah, a bit of a curmudgeon-like kind of character, or he's a bit grumpy. Right. It's the grumpy. And this is something that we're going to delve into later, because I feel like the sort of grumpiness and the lack of patience is something that is also quite typical of sort of fantastical wizards. But so you've already mentioned Harry Potter. I mean, that's quite a famous one in terms of wizards. But what other books have you have you read that kind of feature feature wizards or what's your favourite wizardly depiction in fantasy? Oh, that's a good question. I, I obviously, well, obviously there's all the rings. You can't, you course, can't get I mean, around. Yeah. Obviously Gandalf. But I, I well, I'm a big D&D fan so I do like Elminster from from the D&D kind of world he's the same kind of character he's you know an amazing wizard and you can see like his whole life through it in the D&D books as well and kind of the law and but I really like Uprooted by Naomi Novik actually that wizard the dragon is is quite is very young I mean he's old like mm-hmm. but he's you know looks youthful and young <laughs> and he's a kind of romantic still grumpy character though so yeah that's one of probably my favorite depictions of a wizard and in terms of wizards i'm trying to think because all of those ones you mentioned and they're sort of similar in terms of like gandalf as well it's kind of the power is just sort of unstoppable like there isn't really a limit on the power necessarily 
No, that wizards no. can have is that it's like they're connected to magic in in every way in possible. Some way. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And they choose. They're kind of a morality figure, aren't they? Yeah. They choose to. If you're if you're an evil wizard, you're not a wizard anymore. You're a sorcerer. And then mm. if you're a wizard, you're on the side of good usually. But you don't. You also are very unhelpful. <laughs> like if you think of Gandalf, he just the tree never outright off. help. You're just yeah. like ah oh, well. Maybe that cushion will be good for your back, but maybe it will not. Only you can decide. <laughs> for goodness sake, just give me the blubber cushion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they, they're kind of the, the I'd say they're the kind of divine hmm. personification of of magic or, or morality in a story. Um, what about you, though? I'm, I'm guessing... Have, have a guess. <laughs> have a guess. Um, does it happen to be a Terry Pratchett book? <laughs> it does. Oh, yeah. it? Who would have guessed? Well, actually, so one of the, like, mini-series within the Discworld universe focuses on the wizards in Discworld. And it's, I mean, to, I think that that's sort of what inspired me a little bit when I was preparing this episode because I think it's just the perfect representation of academia is kind of a bunch of old men running around in a university just sort of eating lots of food and pretending that they're doing a lot of good and noble things and they can do the stuff if they're push you know if push comes to shove they know what they're doing and they have that experience but you wouldn't know it <laughs> that kind of thing and my, I I do have a quote from the last continent which I think sort of sums it up nicely. So Ponder Stibbons, who's in this one, is like a young wizard who's sort of just starting, and he's the only one who kind of does any real work around the place. So it's when he was a boy, Ponder Stibbons had imagined that wizards would be powerful Democrats, gods, able to change the whole world at the flick of a finger. And then he'd grown up and found out that they were tiresome old men who worried about the state of their feet and, in harm's way, would even bicker about the origin of the phrase, in harm's way. It had never struck him that evolution works in all kinds of ways. There were still quite deep scars in old buildings that showed what happened when you had the other kind of wizard. So it's kind of, and and the way that it develops within that universe is it starts off with the sort of classic, you have a lot of wizards at this university and you basically, it's dead man's shoes to progress. So you have to basically kill whoever whoever is above you in the hierarchy in order to get their position. And then that Ooh. sort of changes when the new arch-chancellor arrives because he is, yeah, a bit more no-nonsense and no one can kill him, basically. And so then at some point they all sort of give up and they just kind of shuffle into their existing positions and then that's how they become a bit more sort of silly. But so I think that it's it's a great depiction because it shows that they can be powerful, but indeed it shows that at the end of the day they're just old men who like their comforts and are a bit indeed sort of selfish and, you know, sure, maybe they do care on some level, but you don't know how much they actually care about people or whether it's just that they want the world to be in order so that they can have some rest, you know? Yeah. Slightly triggering. Yeah. (laughs) I think we all know someone. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting that wizards are always men. Right? You cannot have a female wizard. A female magic user is either a witch or the dark side, a sorcerer. Just saying. <clears throat> There's also a Terry Pratchett book about that. Oh <laughs> we because should just maybe change this into a Terry into Pratchett. The, into the, <laughs> Tilly talks about Discworld and Ash frantically tries to get her back on track. Sort of <laughs> no, because it's one about, because uh, it's the seventh son of the seventh son becomes a wizard. Mm-hmm. But what if the seventh son is actually a seventh daughter? That's what happens in one of the books, basically. And then, yeah, it's oh as God, would, they didn't think it's of called, that, did they? <laughs> it's, it's called Equal Rights. It is very good talking about, you know, 
It's one of Terry Pratchett's earlier ones, so it's a bit less subtle than his later ones, but still it's talking basically about gender equality in that respect, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. But so, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a bit of a variation, but indeed, I think we can see that it's, it, it's always that. <laughs> always men, always, not always, but mostly old or, or old in some way, like old with experience or, you know, even if they seem useful. And I mean, you even have, if we go outside of kind of fantasy fiction, like, and look at well, it is fantasy fictions, but it's sort of more historic folklore, I guess. So, of course, you have the famous one, which is Merlin mm-hmm. from King Arthur. And that one, again, you don't really know whether he's helping because he likes Arthur or whether he's helping just because, you know, he he wants England to go back to the way it should be. And, oh, God, um, make England great again. <laughs> right, you know, basically. Um, so, yeah. And then you have sort of a lot of figures who, I think that Merlin's the only one who's kind of, spoken about as a wizard in that respect but you have a lot of figures from other kinds of folklore where the word wizard's not necessarily used but there's definitely similarities so for example in Japanese folklore you have a figure known as now I apologize for my mispronunciation Abe no Saimai who is again an elderly gentleman (laughs) and he sort of has this this power and this otherworldliness because it's assumed that his father was human but his mother was a fox spirit and that gives him a kind of extra level of of kind of dimension and uh, Extra dimension of magic and yeah, that that side of things. And then you have the oldest recorded magician comes from ancient Egypt papyrus, which is uh, Dedi. Dedi. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Dedi. Yeah. And yes, but he's he's referred to more as a magician in the translations, which kind of has a different ring to it. Like magician I mean, versus wizard. magician makes sounds very modern, isn't it? I wonder if it's just a translation in that way. I wonder if it's a translation or if it's about because it seemed to me that he was doing more sort of almost magic tricks, like not necessarily big, mm-hmm. powerful kingdom helping things, but more sort of mystical yeah, yeah. tricks. Yeah, well, the Egyptians liked that kind of entertainment, yeah. didn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they so. had like magicians and sometimes they were often magician architects as well mm, <laughs> too so yeah and i mean i guess you do have like gandalf as well you know and at the beginning everyone just thinks he's a magician you know they see him more as a magician at yeah. some point like in hobbiton and things and then at some point you realize oh wow actually he's quite powerful he's very powerful yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes yeah, so One thing that we sort of have touched on a little bit already, so a lot of the concepts about wizardry come from them being men that are in power in some way. And I mean, most actually fantasy depictions, I'm trying to think now, apart from Harry Potter and Terry Pratchett, it's usually individuals, right? They're not like banded together. They are in some way, like they have a collective conclave of like wizards, but they are usually like individual journeymen almost mm, yeah. that are connected by magic and they know each other if they're in that world but they're always kind of like I don't know I always see them as like in a tower with loads of books yeah. and a cat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know or like a little dragon or something yeah <laughs> um, yeah tiny dragon <laughs> you know so I think they they know each other like if you look at like Gandalf like there's also the kind of different was it Ragagast and um, yeah. all the other kind of and wizards of that are going around and, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. The blue, the blue wizards, and the brown wizard, brown the, wizards. yeah. So there's lots of different categories almost, yeah, and they all know each other. It's it's it is kind of like archaeology in a way because I mean, if you're a wizard, you probably know other wizards, and like you know, you can 
step outside and archaeology is a very small world and you'll talk mm-hmm. to someone and they'll go, oh, I know an archaeologist. And you go, okay, who are they? And you'll know them. Yeah. It's a small world. So I feel like it would be the same for wizards. <laughs> Especially if you're at that level, like professors, basically, right? Yeah. Like, they're yeah, basically they'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, I've heard of Tilly. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> not quite that. But if you think of, yeah, like the big names in archaeology, like even I was chatting to someone the other day and... She was saying, yeah, da, da, da. And, you know, I also studied Usware. And I went, oh, who was your professor? And she said, oh, Sylvie Berries. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, because I've read so much from Sylvie Berries. You know, it's if you're yeah. within a particular thing. So you can imagine that with the wizards, you know, like, oh, what, which wizard did you apprentice under? Oh, well. <laughs> yes, I see Ian Hodder like that. <laughs> like, I mean, he definitely is. Like- <laughs> He's a wizard. He's, he's definitely a wizard who's just pretending to be human. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he was like kind of a mythical figure almost for us right. at university. We used to do Hodder hunts every so often. So we'd hide a little picture of Hodder around the department and you'd go and like find the Hodder. It's usually a drinking game, but still. Which we should point out, by the way. So Ian Hodder is yeah. Professor Ian Hodder. I actually am not sure where he's working right now, but I can very quickly look that up because he was working, I know, on the Chattelhoyuk mm-hmm. site. Stanford, a, of course. Yeah, he is still at Stanford. There we go. Yeah, Stanford University. And he's British and he is very famous in archaeology for being a big proponent of what's known as post-processual archaeology, which I think we might get into Just later. Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, but yes, he's, he's basically one of those names that you learn in the, you're bound to learn in the first year of an archaeology degree. You're bound to come have to read some Ian Hodder. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of pretty standard. <laughs> um, he's done yep. so much. <laughs> yeah, he does. I think, does he not do entanglement? That's entanglement like thing, theory. human theory. Yeah. But he's, yeah, he's like a big name, big yeah. name. He would be the Elminster of archaeology. <laughs> and <laughs> then I think Gordon... Of archaeology? Probably yeah, not. I, no, no, I think Gordon V. Child would be the the Gandalf. <laughs> and I think Ian Hodder would be the Elminster. <laughs> the Saruman. <laughs> no, he would not be Saruman. He would not. Or Radagast. I mean, I see him a bit as a Radagast. <laughs> I apologise, Ian Hodder. Yeah, we, Hodder, we just think, we love you. If, if you are listening to this, we are big fans. But, you know, unfortunately, when you become a celebrity, you are going to be open to some sort of ridicule. <laughs> In that respect, especially well, on the It's, it's kind. Kind. <laughs> <laughs> but I like your your reference to the fact that indeed sort of the wizarding world is almost similar to academia in that respect. Like you definitely have those hierarchies. You definitely have those big names who know each other and who are also kind of a little bit, I mean, like the quote from Terry Pratchett, you know, who would bicker about the origin of the phrase in harm's way when they were in harm's way. I can see archaeology professors doing that, you know, bickering about definitions of terminologies and Absolutely. all of that kind of thing. And also, probably, in, especially at the higher levels of archaeology, it is still quite male-dominated. Although, actually, I read some interesting reports the other day for a blog post I was writing about gender dynamics in within the field of archaeology. And actually, in a lot of places, there are ever so slightly more women now in, than mm-hmm. men. However, this is just in, on average. If you look in the hi- hierarchical levels, shall we say, of, of the wizarding world, then it is still 
fairly male dominated. Yeah, it's this. I remember there was a statistic. I can't remember the actual statistic. I can't say statistic. <laughs> statistic that <laughs> came out. <laughs> it's hot. S is a hot for me. And it basically said that there was more women in field work, but then in managerial positions, it was men. And, yeah. and I think with academia, it's very <laughs> similar to the wizarding world. You get a position, you get it for life. Yeah. Type, really. I mean, the, I remember there was one guy in our department that had been there 60 years and he just lived in this one room and did endocrinology. So like, sounds great to me. And like, I, even when he retired, he didn't leave. So, you know, it's that kind of, you keep that position. You're well known. You've built your profile yeah. as a professor, as a lecturer as well. So people know you. Well, and especially and now and like with the previous generation, I feel, because that was when it all kind of really properly Got, got, I mean, archaeology has been around for a long time, but I feel like the previous generation, which we're also going to talk about a little bit in a second, was really the ones where it kind of started the critical archaeological research and all of that kind of thing. And so that's when people indeed started making names, proper names for themselves. And then you have all these bottlenecks now because mm-hmm. you have wizards in these positions and it's you can't get that position because they're, they're them and there's no way that you can just fire yeah. them <laughs> like no one could replace ian hodder i mean yeah you know like but probably at some point someone will have to well someone will have to there'll be the next ian hodder and it'll be me no <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here everyone <laughs> you heard it here ashley will be ian hodder yeah so and the, th- the funny thing is as well with departments i think they also have their squabbles with each other too so and you kind of get that yes. kind of gossip and i feel like oh, like policy. wizards would be very similar like you just know gandalf's got something to say about radagast like you know like, yeah Well, on the topic of which, so before we get into this scenario, I just want to do a quick check. Do you have your fireproof robes on? Oh gosh, no, I'll go and put those on. Okay, we'll be back in a minute then. Okay, ready? Ready. Right, good. Because remember at the end of our last episode, we saw all of those like flashing lights in the sky? Oh yeah, they almost looked like fireworks. Exactly. So... We decided to investigate further, and we see that they are indeed fiery explosions, which seem to be coming from the direction of a nearby field. We walk over and see that what we thought were fireworks are actually huge balls of fire that are being launched from two ends of the field. So each time one ball is launched from one side, an answering ball is hurled from the other side to crash into it with a bang of flame and sparks. Looking closer, we see that at either end of the field stand two tall men, although actually they only appear tall because they're wearing long pointy hats and they have long robes flowing and swirling around their bodies as they flail with their arms and jump up and down, apparently in anger, I assume. The magic is clear, one is screaming. It is clearly affected by the external influence of the current position of the moon, which we know has a predetermined path that can be objectively quantified. You're objectively quantified, retorts the other. There is no objectivity. You see the moon, but the troll living on the next hill sees nothing but a huge lump of pitted rock. That is just interpretation. That, sir, is the whole bloody point. Standing to one side is a group of huddled figures, also with pointy hats, but of significantly lower height. We approach and ask what is going on. Oh, thank goodness you're here, they cry. We were just thinking that we should call you in. They're having another theoretical argument and it's gotten a little bit out of hand. Another fireball explodes into the sky above us. So, <laughs> based based just on what they have been screaming at each other since we arrived, Ash. 
Mm. And considering its theory, now they are wizards, so we don't know exactly what they're kind of researching. But because we're archaeologists, of course, we have to base it on what we know from archaeological theory. So what would you think of when you hear these sort of arguments being thrown around? Oh, I think it's the age old debate. (laughs) It's processual archaeology versus post processual archaeology. We should get a little, we need to get a little like buzzer. Ding. Ding, 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 ding. Processual archaeology. (laughs) (laughs) It's always the age old debate. Every single time there is always someone who's a processionalist and there's always someone who's a post processionalist. And then there's us who are. After the fact. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I still remember learning about this in class. Out of curiosity, Ash, you're, we sort of, I think we spoke about this in the first episode, but I can't actually remember. Were you also someone who in, quite actually enjoyed the archaeological theory class? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the, I think that's why I went into material culture, like post-processual theory. We'll talk about it, but it talks a lot about material culture and the kind of relationship between material culture and people a lot of the time so yeah I did like it and also I'm just like I love theory I think theory is a lot of fun and you can be yeah and sometimes we are the wizards arguing with each other right I like that (laughs) and what I like is that you've sort of mentioned it already that yeah people the big names in archaeology and you have big names in like all these different theories, which I'll, I'll explain the theories a bit more in a second. But what I love is also when you read theoretical papers, it is honestly, it, it's basically this scenario that we've just been in, but written down on paper. Absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just... The rebuttals. Yeah. It's <laughs> quite so, funny. And, and, and they're so funny because they're written so professionally, but they are so like, burn. Yeah, the shade <laughs> in them is unreal. Mic drop. <laughs> like, yeah, it is gossip to the highest extreme. You're like, oh, oh. Um, you know, Renfrew does not like such and such. And yeah. you're like, oh, he doesn't agree with that, did he? Oh, exactly. you know. <laughs> yeah. And it's so... Not even passive aggressive, just aggressive aggressive. It's like aggressive. A lot of things. Like the authors of this paper clearly did not consider, or you know, if they considered for some reason that is unbeknownst to me, they decided to, you know, kind of yeah. thing. And you're there going, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, and then and sometimes I find they have to have like another editor if they're doing like a larger book, which is about like you know the different approaches or something, just to make sure that they're not super biased, right? In every single approach <laughs> that they do, <laughs> you know, you're like, oh god. <laughs> I wonder whether the big names, like knowing from the two sides, whether they have, you know, all of these, so like these wizards as well, you know, they're throwing fireballs at each other and they're getting angry, but then afterwards they'll go together and have like a cup of tea or something. Like I Absolutely. wonder if the, the professors like get together for a pint every so often. And <laughs> Absolutely. I remember like, in, even just in commercial, people who went to university with each other and they were always like, he's always been the same since university. Mm-hmm always done and they would be like managers and they would squabble and then they would like go out and have a meal together and you'd be like okay, I just don't understand how to do that I can't compartmentalize my life like that yeah but it yeah. is right it's really mm-hmm. yeah always this business it's just business or whatever in, which in yeah. archaeology in archaeological theory then means something else yeah I mean I think it's like I think archaeological theory is like the battleground of archaeology so like mm. it's like go to the mattresses this is it. There's, there's no longer just business. It's personal. <laughs> and there's so many different arguments about different things. Like, and even I remember hearing from, uh, oh gosh, I can't even remember who it was now, but it was a very big name in archaeological theory. And it was just, the whole thing was all about the word assemblage. 
and whether it is appropriate to use the word assemblage and what that word means. And he gave an hour and a half long talk about it. And it was fascinating. But afterwards, I thought Michael came with me, my husband, who is not an archaeologist. He came with me. And afterwards, he's like, so what was... (laughs) I don't get it. What was that And And you just know, right, that that's a rebuttal from someone that he's watched, that that they said the word assemblage in the wrong context. And he was like, that's not how you do it. So, And then they get their fury and they start (laughs) typing away and suddenly there's a whole conference about the word assemblage. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was, I I was fascinated. I loved that talk, but Michael thought it was a bit ridiculous. But... (laughs) But that's the thing. We have to argue about the the kind of small things, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it gives us something to do on those yeah. long evenings. <laughs> when we're digging holes, we have to think about something. <laughs> yeah, true, true. So for everyone who is thinking, but what on earth is processual archaeology? To be fair, a lot of archaeologists also, you know sort of roughly what it is, but it's one of those things that you just know the kind of vague concept of it, but very few people actually know the like in-depth, but I'm just going to give here a very shallow, very shallow (laughs) overview of what it is. So if anyone listening is interested in finding out more, please do go and do some further reading. I'll put some further readings in the show notes because this is just a very shallow single person's view on (laughs) on what these things are. They're (laughs) much more complicated than what I'm making them out to be here. So processual archaeology first emerged in the kind of late 1950s, early 1960s. And it was mainly Lewis Binford, who was kind of one of the big proponent of this idea of processual archaeology. And I mean, it's hard to imagine now. I think there's so many things in modern archaeology that we just take for granted. But actually, if you look back at that time period, there were so many things that were problematic, like happening before then. And these big theoretical changes actually made big changes in how we look at the past and how we consider people and how we consider modern cultures as well, indigenous cultures, gender archaeology, etc. So we'll get into that in a sec. But so processual archaeology was also referred to as the new archaeology. So that kind of shows you how big a deal it was like at this time. And it was basically a criticism of earlier theories, multiple theories, which had almost seen the sort of sites and materials and archaeological evidence as just static snapshots. <laughs> that's that's a hard word. That's like statistics, <laughs> static snapshots of the past. So, you know, they were left exactly like that. And that's as if you came along and just took a, a, little, a little picture of the past. That's what it was. However, processual archaeology as the name suggests, argued that the past was not just multiple static moments. It was actually part of an ongoing dynamic process, which then comprised of kind of multiple systems that were coming in and was affected by multiple systems as well. So for example, you could look at kind of economic developments. You could look at changes in subsistence and how they were affected. You could see the effect of environmental changes on society. So this was also when a lot of like models came into place. So it's like, right, the, the, a lot of hunter-gatherer studies looked at kind of models of, oh, what's the most, for want of a better word, efficient way for them to, you know, get the material and what would they have done and in order to survive kind of thing. There was a lot of focus on survival. So it requires a much more like scientific approach that was very testable and objective methods, very model-focused, very systems-focused, etc. Mm-hmm. However, you then had in the 1970s and the 1980s, you had a lot of actually people who were processual archaeologists. So Ian Hodder was originally kind of a processual archaeologist. He used to do kind of modeling and all of that kind of stuff. And by modeling, I don't mean like airplanes. I mean like like computer modeling of things. So kind of predictive modeling in that respect. But then, yeah, they realize, actually, no, this is 
you can't look at the past in this way. The past is too messy. We can't look at it through this objective lens. We can't kind of look at it as as a computer program because you have all of these different things. You have things like agency. And we spoke in an earlier episode about object agency, for example, that was a big part of post-processual, but also human agency. So people have agency. People have the ability to make their own decisions. I mean, this is a whole other philosophical discussion over whether free will exists or, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> we, let's maybe not get into that now. But, you know, change isn't just due to external influence, basically, is what they were saying. It's also, you know, internal choice. And yeah, so so th- there was a lot more subjectivity brought in. And my favorite thing ever in archaeology is related to post-processual archaeology. And it's that idea that all of our interpretations are just going to inherently be biased by us, like by our own experience and our own context. And we have to understand that in order to kind of make interpretive decisions. So unlike the processualists who said, no, 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 we can be really objective. The post-processualists were like, nah, we cannot. So yeah, and and kind of big names in in the post-processual archaeology, as we mentioned, was Ian Hodder. You also have, for example, Michael Shanks, Christopher Tilly, Margaret Conkey, just to name a few. And big names in processual archaeology, uh, yeah, Lewis Binford, who was kind of almost thought of as the father of processual archaeology. And then you have David Clark, Colin Renfrew, etc. So yeah, as we were talking about earlier, you had sort of all these big names who were then basically arguing with each other a lot about... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what I love as well is there's also this argument that, for example, with post-processual archaeology, that actually it doesn't exist because no two people who call themselves or who might think that they're post-processual archaeologists actually think in exactly the same way. Like everyone has, which also yeah. kind of proves the point of post-processual archaeology and that we're all affected by, yeah. By our own bias. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it sort of has moved on from there as well. But we, when I was at university, and this was a few years ago, so it might have changed, we didn't quite have a name for it yet of right. what, what we were, we like us, our generation right? of archaeologists were. Yeah. So we're kind of past the post we're post post processual, um, <laughs> you know. You knew, um, we're the newest. It's like, the new wave archaeology. Coined like, here. You know when you have like a, a word document and you're like final version, and then you redo it, and you're like, okay, final point one, and then final so final version two. This is definitely the last one. <laughs> yeah. so, we're basically Joey with the thor. The, 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 I can't say the thor. <laughs> Goodness me, this is just the episode where neither of us can pronounce it. No, no, <laughs> thesaurus. Thesaurus. <laughs> we're, we're like what is post what is what could we how could we say this differently right Um, and one of the things i think is really interesting with this kind of debate is that you still see it in university today not only and obviously the the lecturers and who believes in what and so forth but choosing archaeology as a degree in the science or as a history that's where it comes down to well i'm curious what what your experience with that was because you also did materials yeah but you didn't do material analysis from an archaeological like from a scientific perspective right or did you do also do that i did but i did my degree in humanities yeah at glasgow university you could choose to do your degree in archaeology in sciences so my friend did her bachelor's in sciences and Mm. she had to like sit somewhere else at graduation <laughs> um, and wear a different colour girl. Sit in the processual side. <laughs> yeah, so she, she sat on the other side of the hall. And then um, she had like a yellow and green top of her, her robe. And then we had, who were humanities, had a purple and a, like oh, a darker, yeah, purple. like purple mm-hmm. one. So yeah, and I don't know how it, and I don't even think she knew why it ended up like that. <laughs> um, I think because she took geology 
as well not she wasn't doing both but because she wanted to do geology and she wanted to do archaeology she had to go through the sciences yeah yeah. while everybody else i did history and archaeology and i went through history but that was kind of ian hodder he thought that you know archaeology should be seen more as a history Mm. or a historical subject and then you know you had colin renfrew who actually was like no it's science and that's kind of the basic it's science versus history but (laughs) now we're (laughs) yeah but now we're actually both like we've always been both obviously there's different sides to it but yeah you you look at a site and you interpret it in a different way and most of the stuff i was doing especially on, on different sites was mostly science i mean taking samples looking at site theory different lens like that's the kind of way that you do it and you're trying to get as much information and data as possible in a short amount of time so yeah it's it's funny how it still permeates into the academic structure yeah well and (laughs) Um, even i like that you say it's sort of both science and interpretation so what i did microanalysis so that's definitely scientific in that you're identifying traces like right you're looking at the evidence but it's so subjective because yeah. how you interpret those traces, you know, so there's also so much debate about what terminology to use. We shouldn't use the word interpret. We should actually use the word identify. But then if we use the word interpret, that has to reflect that it's our own biased interpretation. There's so much like stuff about it. So I did science. I did my undergrad was, it ended up being a, a master's of arts, but it was in the geo in Aberdeen, it's in the geosciences department. So it's very much it's a lot more scientifically focused, even though you're doing a lot of theory as well. And then for my master's, I did archaeological science. But yeah, we we had to. You, you have to un- understand how much that even though you're looking at the data and everything, still the way that you're interpreting that data is inherently biased even you know <laughs> yeah exactly and you you can't you can't be objective with that yeah. i don't think as a person like we also grew up in a society we have a modern lens and we yeah. often place it in the past and that's something that we'll talk about in future episodes but you know th- that's inevitable i find yeah. and i think that's just what's happening here in that argument. It's mm. them developing their theory over and over again. I mean, without processual archaeology, you wouldn't have post-processual archaeology, exactly. and you wouldn't have whatever whatever we are now. Yeah. You know, so and you wouldn't have feminist archaeology coming into it because post-processual exactly. doesn't look at just the systems, but it looks at the people and it looks yeah. how people are reflected in the systems, but also how the systems are reflected in the people and how they're yeah. entangled in that way. Yeah, so it starts right. to look at gender, and so. Otherwise, we would just have very kind of limited scope of what archaeology and what the past was like if we if we kept it as it was in the early 50s and 60s. And you've got to remember that in the early 50s and 60s, there's a lot of scientific change going on. I mean, radiocarbon dating comes into it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is very different from when we had the antiquarian stuff where it was literally just a man in a chair pointing and making manual <laughs> like laborers just do, do all the digging and they'd be like, yes, that's very nice. Yes, And you have social changes happening as well. Like exactly. In, in society and how we see other cultures, how we saw, yeah, genders and, and that kind of thing. Like it's a lot of... Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of change in our own society that's reflected back uh, onto how we interpret, I'm going to say interpret, the past. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay, because you are interpreting. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, for those of you who are listening, by the way, and thinking, I mean, yeah, sure, this is interesting, but why do you have to learn about the history of archaeological theory? Like, if we're no longer processualists, why do we have to know about it? I mean, one argument that I would say is that you quite often have to read other papers, right, in order to be able to reference your Mm -hmm. own work and sort of see what's been done before and all of that kind of thing. And you need to kind of understand where those researchers are coming from, because 
it's, you know, if, if their interpretations or their theoretical framework is based in, for example, processual or post-processual, that will affect the kind of conclusions that they're making, just like the wizards, you know, like both of these wizards are talking about the moon, but they both have very different ideas of what it is. So if you would read just the the study from one of them, you would have a very different thought about, oh, this is what the moon is compared to from the other one. So that's at least my argument. I don't know if you'd agree with that. <laughs> no, definitely. I think I think you have to understand archaeology. I mean, archaeology is the study of the past. Why can't you understand the history of archaeology as well? You know? Yeah, exactly. It's so kind yeah. of where we need to go for it. Yeah. So based on all of this, we then decide, okay, let's just try to reason with the two wizards, right? Pointing out the pros and cons of both of their theoretical approaches, trying to get them to compromise and to understand the other's perspective, where it's coming from, how it's developing. There's a little bit of a soft lull as we make our arguments. The wizards both eye each other dubiously. In the calm, a bird starts to warble its song into the air nearby. It seems as if tranquility might finally be falling over the fields again. But then, on guard, you flouncy ninny, cries one of them. Bring it on, you stiff-necked prick, shouts the other. And fireballs once more fill the sky. Oh, it just goes to show you can never really stop a certain kind of academic when they just want to have an argument. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's about it for this episode of Am My Trial. We hope you enjoyed this slightly different quest. If, as always, there's any suggestions that people have for an episode that you might have gotten from a fantasy book, maybe there's an archaeological concept like a theory, such as those mentioned today, that you don't really understand, perhaps we can help to explain it through fantasy scenarios. Maybe there's something in a book that you want to find out more about from an archaeological perspective. Whatever it is, just get in contact with us via email or social media. All of our contact info, as well as references and further reading for the points we've discussed today, can be found in the show notes. <laughs> Uh, what's that? Um, I don't know, but I definitely don't like it. <laughs> okay, let's go check it out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.